Welcome to the Do Business Better podcast, the place for ideas you can implement to achieve prosperity. You'll get insights from successful business people on how they do business better. You'll glean tactics on creating a life and business by choice because we interview real business people who've done just that. Now here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings and welcome to the Do Business Better podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, but you knew that because you already heard so, heard that in the introduction. We've got a great guest today. Her name is Maria Pesson. She's a fashion industry consultant. She's going to give you lessons, insights, ideas, information you can apply to your own life and business learned from the apparel industry. She was an executive and then she broke out on her own six years ago to start her own consulting business. You might remember this is a common theme because I've had a several other guests on here that worked in corporate for a long time and then they went out on their own. And I think we always learn that even seasoned veterans that were successful in corporate America find out, oh wow, running your own business has a few new little crinkles, a couple little challenges. I hadn't thought about that. Where's my 401k? Where are my guaranteed days off? Where's my pension plan? Anyway, Maria's going to tell us what our business can learn from the fashion and apparel industry and also lessons that she's learned in six years of running her own business. Maria, welcome to the Do Business Better podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, and I'm glad you are here. So, all right. I gave you some some biographicals. You're in New York. You live about 40 miles north of Manhattan. What, 40 minutes, what, not 40 quite minutes 40. north of Manhattan. I'm sorry. What do I need to know about you? You worked. You you know, here you are. You're a young woman uh, starting out 30 some years ago. What, what happened? Well, all my life I wanted to have a career, and I wanted to be rich. And I would tell my parents this all the time. And I knew that to do that, I'd have to be in business. Now, my family is a family of blue-collar workers. Um, the women stayed at home. They didn't have careers or jobs, really. They got married, had babies, and stayed at home. So I had no role models for it, and I had to find my way on my own. I used to play business. I, used to, I thought one thing I knew about business was they used paper and pens. So I cut up pieces of paper and I got my pens and I played business. Don't know what I did after that. I just remember the paper. So that's how little experience and knowledge I have with business. And when I went into the business, I had no contacts. I had no idea what to do. <laughs> well, by the way, Maria, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I know there's, there's folks listening that are just like me and you. You know, my dad worked nights on the railroad. My mom, as a clerk, railroad clerk, my mom and some of us kids milked cows. And I remember the neighbor kids playing in the wintertime, you know, in northern Indiana. You can't be outside all the time playing office and playing office meant that you pretended that you had an office and did something in this room. And then, you know, your buddy was <laughs> over in that room and you pretend you're making calls. There was no fax machines back in 1977. We were playing. We weren't even sure what right. the hell we were doing, but we knew that we were playing office and that in an office we did stuff. <laughs> right. So, so I know exactly what you're talking about. The person I spoke to who used to play the same game that I did. That's yeah, so, so now there it is. You're in your early 20s. Uh, you, you, tell me, how did you get so your... I, found jobs through the want ads in Women's Wear Daily. I started as a clerical. I worked in clerical jobs for three years before I became an assistant buyer. And that's when I started to really get exposed to the industry and learn about it and learn how it worked. So over the years, I each job was a advancement from the job before and I grew in the industry until 
finally I was running my own business. I was executive vice president for a company called Sienna Studio, which is part of G3 Apparel Group, a very large um, business in the apparel industry. And I worked there for 17 years. I was responsible for the launch all the way to building it to a multi-million dollar profitable company with responsibility down to P&L. Sold Neiman, Saks, Bloomingdale's, all the high-end stores, 800 specialty stores, really solid business. Okay, so Every- they, these stores, did you have a count response? Okay, this, Oh, yes, I, I did. Let's go backward a little bit here, Maria. Remember, a lot of these people, you know, remember, we might have a person listening here that runs seven dry cleaners or a person that, right. you know, uh, has a seed business. So, first off, clerical, everybody gets that. Assistant buyer. Uh, in the apparel business, you're always buying in the next the next uh, spring buy fashion, the next fall yes. fashion, am I right? For the stores that you represent. Okay. Yes. And, and so that's you, what I did as an assistant. And then as a business um, manager, mm-hmm. I did everything. Um, I, my biggest focus was sales and marketing because that's what I am at heart. I'm a salesperson. But I also oversaw production, design, shipping, all of that. I had teams of people, of course. I didn't do it all myself. But I had um, people who I worked with and I oversaw so that the vision I had for the company was followed through on. And um, working with big stores, you know, selling, whether you're selling to someone coming in with a bag of laundry or you're selling to Saks Fifth Avenue, it still has a basis in you making a pitch to someone and following through and creating um, a successful interaction with them so they keep wanting to do business with you. And yeah, so here's the thing. And, and I talk about sales in my book, Do Business Better. And uh, certainly I'm in front of corporate crowds every week and, and I'm in front of a lot mm-hmm. of sales crowds. And people always complicate. They almost get freaked out and scared about selling. And I say, you know, selling is understanding a client or a person's problem and then figuring out how you are the solution. It's, uh, you know, people get caught up in used cars and, and high pressure and all that kind of stuff. I'm a sales and marketing person at heart also, Maria. And I think that's important when you're in business because every day you got to realize I provide a service or a product for somebody else. And that, that, that understanding of that then puts you, you're, you're at your best selling and marketing self when you understand I'm doing this to have a demand any purpose to serve somebody else's, uh, you know, pain or problem. Is that how you look at it? Uh, that's exactly how I look at it. I talk about this a lot as well. You know, people come to me and they always look at sales as a scary thing. You know, they think it means you have to push merchandise out someone's throat and, and trick them into buying you. Oh, and the favorite one, all salespeople are liars and they try to, you know, get over on you. All of that is not true. A good salesperson doesn't lie. A good salesperson doesn't ram merchandise down your throat. I always tell people that you should look at what you're doing as a favor to them. If you have a good product, then you're giving them something valuable. So you owe it to them to give them that product. Whether it's, as you said, laundry, um, whether you're selling feed bags or you're selling clothing, if you're selling B2B, so you're selling wholesale, you're giving them a product that they could sell and make money on. So that's a service to them. And if you're selling straight to the consumer and you're giving them something that makes them feel good about themselves to own, then you're doing them a service. So if you change the idea in your head that it's cutthroat and it's 
you know, me against you, but rather you helping them, as mm -hmm. you said, then it's a whole different um, way of looking at it. And it takes the burden of that off of you. And it's mattered to the people that I talk to. They, when they look at it that way, they go, oh, <sighs> they, they sigh and they go, oh, yeah, you know, I've, much I've, got better. Friend, I've got a friend who listens to this podcast that uh, is uh, he's a, a public employee, but he eventually wants to perhaps run his own business. And I know that he probably never fashioned himself as being a salesperson. And uh, he sees probably Damian Mason as a guy that is a sales oriented person. But the thing is, if, if you're a landscape owner, you've got to sell a job. And what you first start by doing is when you pull in the driveway, let's say this is a you know, homeowner and you'd like to get the job, but you got to look at first say, what do they want? Okay. They said they wanted a, a you know, a new porch and, a, and, and some, some shrubs yeah. torn out and all that. What they want is aesthetics. What they want is a job done. What they want is completion. They want uh, beauty. They want uh, butterflies and hummingbirds and they want a place that their wife and, uh, uh, you know, children go out and, and uh, enjoy. You know, that's what you would start with is they don't want a porch. They want the result. The thing it. that, yeah, the thing that the porch brings them. Absolutely. I'll tell you one thing um, about selling that I think based on what you're telling me, a lot of people are afraid of selling. They don't think that it's in their nature to sell as your friend feels it's not in his nature. I was painfully shy growing up like painfully shy. Even into my 20s, I was so shy. I could sit in a room with a bunch of people and not talk for the entire time because I didn't know what to say. And now I could speak in front of groups of a thousand without a problem. I have no problem speaking to anyone. In fact, my kids keep telling me, stop talking to everyone. Because, uh, you know, we're out in a restaurant and I start talking to the next table and they're like always embarrassed. Oh, it's mom doing that again. But, um, Think of the fact that I came from being painfully shy and now I could talk to anyone. That's through effort and work and working on and working on it to come out of it. It didn't happen because I realized I'm a salesperson. I wasn't naturally a salesperson, but I became a really good one. So you're, you're starting, okay, so there you were. You were running not just from a selling standpoint, these brands. So tell me what your last role was and then when you decided to quit and start your own business. Well, my last role was running, um, I was president of Jessica Simpson Coates. Are you familiar with Jessica Simpson, the actress and singer? Certainly familiar with Jessica Simpson. And yes. she had a role in uh, well, the Dukes of Hazard, and she was a singer and she dated the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. And then oh, you know her, a lot about her. <laughs> and she had, her fa she had a fashion line, apparently, you're telling me. She still does. It's a billion dollar brand. It was Fantastic. really significant. I don't, buy, the, I don't buy a lot of women's fashion, so forgive me. That's okay, because when I first started working with her, I thought, you know, I've heard of her. She has this thing about tuna and chicken, you know, is tuna chicken, is chicken of the sea tuna or chicken? That's the only thing I knew about her. And I studied her and um, found out that she was number 40 on the list of most popular um, celebrities. So she was really a hot commodity. But there are a lot of people who have brands who are very famous actors and actresses more famous than she is and were not successful because they didn't have the business part right they just had the celebrity right and the commuto group that owned her business were really solid the owner had been one of the founders of nine west shoes which is a 
pretty big shoe brand. And so he had a lot of experience. So he took it over and he ran it beautifully. And actually her mother who ran it also with her had really good instincts. I remember thinking, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. What is she going to tell me? And I found her delightful to work with and really had good instincts about the business. So that's fantastic. So, So that was your last role. And then you hit, you hit a certain point in your life and you said, I'm going to bust on my own. Or did you get downsized? Or did you say, I'm done with this? What happened? What happened was we were up to re-sign the license. We, it was a third time signing the license. We had it for six years. And they wanted to raise the minimums. And if you know anything about licensing, you usually have a minimum amount of sales you tell them you're going to do. And if you don't meet it, you still have to make pay the commission on the amount you've agreed to. So, so they wanted to raise the minimum, which their business was taking off in leaps and bounds. And I told my boss, we can make this happen. We can do it. And he said, well, I don't want to. And I said, well, if you don't, they're going to take the license away from us. So he played chicken with them and he kept saying no. And then they said, okay, we're pulling the license. So he said, okay, I'll do it. And then, they said too late and he lost the license and my boss was not really the best person to work for. And I could tell that if we lost the license, he would probably want to reduce my salary, whether it was my fault or not. Even though I brought him other additional licenses, I signed on four other companies with us while I was there. And I was tired of working for people who messed up my businesses. You know, it wasn't the first time someone messed up a healthy, successful business on me. And I just was tired of it. And um, at the time that I left and I stopped working, my mother was dying. In fact, she died three days after I left my last job. And I just didn't want to go back to working for anyone. I just did not want to. And that's when I decided to start my consulting business. And Six years later, here I am. Six I years later. Okay, so you, here, there's a lot of changes, and you're not the first person I've had on that talks about this. You know, I quit corporate, and mine was because I wanted to be more creative, and I wanted to make money based on my work and risk-taking and competitiveness and creation versus my ability to go at uh, – sales conferences and, and kiss uh, the VP of sales ass. That's really what I wanted. I wanted, I wanted to be more in charge of my compensation and, um, and, and my advancement. Your uh, departure was because you got tired of uh, somebody messing up your business and, and uh, you also decided it was time to break out on your own for some personal reasons. So there you are. You're what, 45, 50 years old when you started doing this? I'm actually 63. Oh, okay. So you were in your late 50s when you started on your own. Mm-hmm. Okay. What have you learned? Oh my God, so much. Well, number one, you really have to be a self-starter. You have to be able to be at your desk, whatever time you decide that is, and get started and get going. Bless you. And that was kind of an interesting thing. I always thought of myself as a self-starter, but when I started my own business, I really had to master self-discipline in a way I had not before. Yeah, I, I, you know, I agree with that. You know, and I talk about that in my book about uh, that work ethic really is just about discipline. Uh, you know, there's no such mm-hmm. thing as an ambition gene. You're not born, oh boy, 
she came out of the womb and she's really ambitious. No, you, <laughs> you, you just had discipline and you had goals and you uh, made mm-hmm. yourself do it. Work ethic is really generally just discipline. And it's interesting because what you're saying, there are folks that say, yeah, well, you don't have a real job, so you can just probably just kind of do what you want. I'm like, well. My just- kids think that sometimes. They think they can bother me all day long. And they're adults, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so adults. I get it. So there's to a certain, he's like, to a certain degree, that's true. I could do whatever I want. But eventually then, uh, that doesn't pay the bills. There's no revenue coming in from doing what I want. Eventually, he's got to do what serves others that are my paying clients. So, yeah, there's mm-hmm. that. So, okay, self-starter, discipline. Um, what else you learned? Um, I learned, well, here's the thing. When I first started in my business, I knew the fashion business really well, but I didn't know the consulting business. And I had to learn that because it's a whole different way of working. And so I hired experts who were consultants and they worked with other consultants to help them build their business. So I learned the processes of running it. You know, Michael Gerber wrote that book, um, E-Myth. And he talks about working on your business, not just in your business. And that's what I had to figure out, how to work on a business that I had no experience with. And that's really one of the biggest things that I learned. Processes are important to all businesses. Okay. I ask all the people this. Did you have a formal business plan six years ago when you struck out on your own? I have to admit I didn't. Okay. The truth I've of the matter is... Either. And you'd be amazed at the number of very successful people that have very successful businesses that have never had a business plan because I believe that they are outdated and I believe they quickly become outdated. I don't agree with you. I actually believe in them. I okay. just, I'm in, that's why I'm embarrassed to say I didn't do one. Well, then and I'm let me glad tell you, you tell me. Tell me why you're, tell me why you're a proponent because I'm not. I want you, I want to hear it. Sure. Well, first of all, you know you're going to be making assumptions that, you know, maybe they work and maybe they don't. And they're just jumping off points. What I like about a business plan is that it gives you a strategy and a roadmap for running your business. It forces you to answer questions that you might not have thought about before you started. For example, what's your mission statement? What's your vision? What's your product? Um, Who's your audience? What's the demographics? What are the psychographics? How do they spend their money? What is their lifestyle? Um, What is your USP, your unique selling proposition? It asks you all of these questions and forces you to write it down and figure it out and come up with a blueprint for your business rather than what a lot of people do is they start designing a line. They don't even know who their customer is. They don't even know where they're going. They don't know how they're going to price it. You have to figure all of that out. What's your production going to be? Who's going to produce it? How are your margins going to work out? Those are things that are really important, and that's why I like business plans. I like what you just said. I guess I think of, except for when you talked about mission statement, because that's corporate poetry. Uh, that, that's that's. Uh, but no, no. Let me just tell you why it's good. Because your messaging comes from that. You use that in your social media and your marketing tools, so it is valuable. You know, you you talked about something that was really important there. Um, you talked about beyond the the production part of it and all those things you talked about understanding who your audience is or who's your customer going to be um and of course the problem is if that's all you ever stick with in three years it might move uh you know all of a sudden jessica simpson's line might turn out that it's not for the 
to 19 year olds because they don't know who Jessica Simpson is. They don't care. So in other words, at some point you've got to look at maybe your product, your product appeals to a different demographic. So it's good to understand that early on. But the problem I always say about business plans is they need to evolve. They need to move. A thousand percent. You're absolutely right. You can't make one and then put it in the drawer and 10 years later you look at it. You always have to be evolving. Your product is always evolving. Your structure, as you grow in sales, everything evolves and you have to evolve with it. The way, for example, and this speaks to what you're saying, at 63 years old, I dress totally differently than my grandmother did at 63 years old. Sure. You know, I wear tights with, you know, um, booties and, you know, tops that are more form-fitting, whatever. My grandmother wore girdles, and she never wore a pair of pants in her life. Obviously, you have to evolve with how culture and people evolve, and your target market moves. Do you stay with the target market of a 19-year-old? You might stay there. Or you might evolve with the 19-year-old as she becomes 25, 35, and 45. But truthfully, most people stay with their core customer, and the customer might evolve out of the market. Yeah, right. Yeah, so sometimes your customers, uh, you, you stay with what your product what your product demographic is, and then there's people that come and go from there. So the kids that are buying vans, uh, you know, the 60-year-old maybe doesn't buy vans anymore, but he did when he was 25 or whatever. I, I get that. We all sell something, most of us in the mature economy, sell stuff that is not necessary. Fashion, to me, is right up there. It's just under luxury goods. I mean, there's yachts and, and um, diamond brooches uh, that are fairly unnecessary. They're luxury items. Uh, you know, I smoke good cigars. They're not by any means a necessity. And then there's fashion. If your clothes still fit and they're not worn out, you don't need to get rid of clothes. But the fashion industry has program people and they spend a lot of money making you have to go through your closet and throw a bunch of stuff away and buy new. Is that what we should all be doing? Yeah. <laughs> you have to create you have to create a desire, an aspiration to your customer. Whether you're selling bananas or you're selling, you know, jewelry, you have to make them want to buy your product. Nobody needs anything, really. When I was a kid, we didn't have TVs like we have now, no flat screen. We didn't have faxes. We didn't have cell phones. We certainly didn't have computers. I don't know about you, but in my family, we went out to dinner once or twice a year to a special dinner, and it was very unusual to go out. Now you go out three, four times a week. Um, we didn't go on vacations the way they do now. People have a different level of expectations in their life. And, oh, here's another thing, redecorating. Your grandmother decorated her house when she bought it, and probably when she died, if she's not dead or alive, whatever, right now it still looks exactly the same. Right. She right. didn't redecorate. We were decorating, you know, some people redecorate every four or five years. They're constantly redecorating when they're evolving their house. Nobody needs any of this stuff. But we've created an environment where people aspire and feel like they should have everything that they want. And that's what a good marketer will do, will create an emotional connection to what you do so that customers will want to buy you. We call it sometimes aspirational marketing, where you set an aspiration. For example, Ralph Lauren. 
Ralph Lauren is a great designer. He's been around for many years. And he created this luxury brand that's very Americana, kind of New England and feeling. And when you see his stuff, you know, oh, that's Ralph Lauren. And he created this whole, like, image of what a person's life could be. Yeah, if I buy a polo, if I buy a Ralph Lauren polo shirt, it, it makes me believe that I'm going to, the, the, I've, I haven't, I've never been to a polo match. I don't even know where I would go to a <laughs> polo match. I, I've never, I, I've never been to the East, to East Hampton, New York, but I'm sure that by buying that and then also splashing all the little bit of Ralph Lauren's polo, I, by buying it and using the product, aspired myself right over to being in the Hamptons uh, in June at Eddie Polo. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. You feel kind of, you feel the vibe going on. Um, and that is existing in so many different markets in so many different ways. Uh, home decorating this, you ever watch any of the HGTV shows? My, my the, wife's favorite network. Mine too. I, I'm addicted to it. And I watch these shows and they show how they, you know, make over people's houses and they create an image of a life. Like one of the big trends is farmhouse style, big trend. Nobody, you know, how many people are farming? Nobody's farming. I mean, you know, that just doesn't exist, but they feel like the nature and the comfort and the coziness of the farmhouse style which they aspire to. And when they come home, they feel that and it makes them feel good. And that's what a good marketer will do. You know, Marie, it's funny you should bring that up because I just snapped a picture of the checkout at the grocery the other day that was Home and Gardens, uh, Better Home and Gardens, uh, Farmhouse Christmas Edition. And of course, I am a farmer from a dairy farm. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a farm guy. And I'm like, I wonder how authentic this is. You know, they go show... Um, uh, you know, a, a sick calf that we brought into the laundry room because it, uh, <laughs> it was a blizzard going on outside. And, you know, the refrigerator's got uh, some calf medicine in it. How farmhouse are we going to show it? Um, is it going to be that, uh, you know? It's no farmhouse anyone who farms lives in. That's exactly right. It's the aspiration of the ideal. And that's what you're talking about. When you sell, no matter what we do, you know, my buddy that says he's going to start a landscaping company, he needs to sell the aspiration of the ideal that you're going to sit back here, dear homeowner, with your spouse and children and sipping a drink in the evening, and and you're going to be so fulfilled through this that you just transformed. You just made a little vacation out of your backyard. I mean, that's what we're really creating. So he would be served by having pictures of backyards or front yards, whatever, that look really special and different and maybe even before and after to show no matter how bad your backyard was, look how beautiful it could be. And people get, that's why pictures are so important in visual product because they create that, they're part of the emotional connection. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the old thing about, uh, you know, tell me and I might, but you show me and I understand. Well, same thing when you're marketing stuff. All right. Maria Pesson is her name. We're going to get uh, our last quick and dirty here. Okay, you don't. You didn't have a business plan. Goals. You're 63 years old. You're still working. Tell me about your goals. Oh, I always have goals. Every year I have goals. And my goal for my business is for it to be a 50 to $100 million business. So I think big. And I think that I want to have certain silos. I know what parts of the business I want to do. So even though I haven't written it down, I know specifically what it's going to look like. And I tell this to my clients. I said, tell me what your business looks like when it's finished. Not when you 
sell it, but when you feel like you've arrived, what would that look like? And that's the goal I set for my business. And I also read a lot and I'm always learning. So I have goals for learning and for expanding myself personally. And goal, I always have goals. You always have to have too. something to look forward to. I do too. And I read a lot also. And, and, uh, I want to ask you, what should we learn from from the fashion industry? Besides about aspirational uh, positioning and, and marketing, what else can we learn from the fashion industry? Well, the fashion industry is a very mature industry. It's not like a new product that's coming out that has a lot of growth behind ahead of it a lot of the growth has already happened so of course, there's new products every year but it's not a new product it's not like uber or uh, google it's it's just still clothes right and it's not as vibrant a market as some of the new things like WeWorks is a very vibrant market there it has not reached saturation the garment center the fashion business in the u.s has pretty much peaked in terms of its growth. Yes, it'll have incremental growth, but not dramatic growth. So if somebody's going to buy your product, they have to really not buy someone else. So you have to make sure you have a reason to be in your business, that you don't look like everybody else on the block. You have a reason why somebody would buy you instead of someone who they like and enjoy already. So like your friend who's starting the landscaping business, he's had I'm sure there's many landscaping businesses where he is and it's not like he's the only game in town. So how is he going to bring the business to him away from someone else? What is he going to bring to the table that gives them a reason to go, Oh, that sounds really good. I'm going to check that out. And that's what we can teach other industries. Um, You know, you see things like, I want to give you an example of what I mean. What's like a very ordinary product that they've turned into something unbelievable? Beer. Beer, you know, my father drank, um, what is that beer that used to be? Pips or Slits. So yeah, Slits, okay. Slits, right. right. He used right. to drink like, there's like all these basic brands. Then Heineken came. Yeah. Oh, it's like a more couture brand. Now they have all these brands that are artesian brands. So they yeah, made something. Craft, craft, yeah, craft beer is, is obviously still, it came on the scene 25 years ago and it's just not, it's not, uh, it's not growing as much still, but it's still taking on a hell of a big chunk of the marketplace. So Absolutely. yeah, what you're saying then is what we can all learn from the fashion industry is uh, continue to roll out a reason for them to do best with us. Right. Make sure you have something that makes you stand out from your competition. Last thoughts from Maria Pesson, fashion industry veteran and consultant. Any piece of advice, knowledge, personal lesson that you've learned in your career or even in your six years of running your own consultancy that we can apply to our business? Perseverance. It's very easy to get discouraged when you're doing your business and to want to check it all. And you know that story about the man who was digging for gold? He was in Europe or something, and he was digging for gold. And he kept digging, 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 and he never found the gold, so he sold the mine. And the gold was found, like, not much later. It was He was a foot from the gold. Yeah, sure. So it's like, you, you, you know, you, you, at some point, you cut your losses and say sunk cost is sunk cost. And there's also the reality that sometimes you're, you're within a, you're, you know, it's the old thing about most people die within six feet of the shore, uh, drown six feet of the shore. Well, you know, <laughs> right. it, you're this close, you're this close. 
All right. Perseverance, which is interesting. I say in my book, Do Business Better, which, dear listener, I would love for you to pick up a copy of. It uh, would make your 2020 amazing if you picked up a copy of Do Business Better at DamianMason.com. It's available for sale, DamianMason.com. Uh, I've got them right there. And uh, I talk about the four traits of entrepreneurial success. And perseverance is right up there with what I call resilience. You can call it resilience. You can call it perseverance. You can call it bounce back factor. It's really the same thing. It's like, by God, I won't quit, I think is what you're saying. Right. I don't have a plan B. I only have a plan A. I keep doing it until it works. I like it. I actually, I agree with that also. If you give yourself too many fallback options, you're never really committed to your first option, right? Exactly. You know, six months, a year later. Sorry, go ahead. Maria, if these people want to connect with you, where should they find you? Well, my website is vibe, V as in Victor, I, B as in boy, E, consulting. Co. And if you want to have a free consultation with me, you can reach me at Maria at vibeconsulting.co. Awesome. Thanks for being on. And thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And thanks for listening. Until next time, it's the Do Business Better podcast.